All right. Well, I want to welcome everyone back to the Duff Pond Wall. Today, my guest is Anna Long, Emory & Henry class of 2018, which seems like it was 15 minutes ago. She works for HarperCollins in Brooklyn, New York, and I'm going to make her tell us exactly what her full title is because she's already confronted me with a really cool thing that she does that I don't fully understand because you acquire books. You acquire books. Tell us, let's just start right there. What does it mean that you acquire books? Do you like get a thousand lists of things and these people are saying, I want, I want you to print me. I want you to be, I want you to be my publisher. And you have to go through there and say, you stink and you're good. And this is the job we're going to do. Well, I mean, essentially, yes, but, (laughs) and uh, I, I get a lot, a lot of good things. I mean, I, I get lots of interesting things and it's interesting because you do, you get a lot of stuff that is good, but it's not publishable that, that you, you look at something and think, well, I mean, I look at something and I think sometimes, oh, this is great. I'm enjoying reading this. I don't know how to sell this. So there's a real commercial element of it as well, where you're making judgments, not just about quality, but about what is, what is marketable for a big company. You're going to need to make decisions on those, on those levels and trying to hone my instincts for the difference between those things is something that I've learned over the last few years. And so I, I came into the company as an editorial assistant. I didn't know anything. I was, uh, and there was like six months of backlog of work from my boss who had not had an assistant for a while. And so I was, I was so behind on so many things. I didn't know, I barely knew what an imprint was, which an imprint well, is. What is an imprint? Let's, let's go there next because you're, because tell us your actual job title. And I'm, so I'm an assistant editor and I acquire books for Harper and for broadside books but primarily for broadside books and an imprint is like a small company within a big company you have one or two people that run it and uh it's more narrowly focused on a specific type of books in broadside books case it's conservative political books um or libertarian but as an editor i'm a little bit more of a freelancer which is not what people realize they they see the imprints they see the brand but as an editor if i'm interested in in acquiring a book that is by someone who would not fit under that imprint at all, um, someone who is either you know politically liberal or if it's just a topic that's not about politics, then I would publish it through the Harper brand, which is just sort of like the the main, more neutral brand. Um, well, it's not neutral; it's it's <laughs> it's liberal, but in in publishing, liberal is neutral. So. Um, I think I understood that some publishing companies had sort of a political bent. It just didn't occur to me that there'd be like, I mean, I guess I should have, but there'd be liberal publishers and neutral publishers. It's sort of a, it's sort of an ongoing evolution of publishing. Conservative imprints broke off from the, the main companies, I don't know, 15 years ago or something like that. I mean, this, this is, me uh, going a little bit into stuff that I don't know as much about because I wasn't wasn't here for this part of it. Um, but essentially, big publishers wanted to have conservative imprints because they were starting to realize there's a market for conservative books in a way that they didn't quite realize before. And there was, you know, probably a level of snobbishness with that and just a level of ignorance. You know, it's that you, you, you're in a big city, you assume that people in small towns, there's just not a market there. But Amazon has really opened up the reality that middle Americans do buy books too. Uh, not that not that all middle Americans are conservative, but that you know that there's a there's a wider and a more varied audience there. 
they started to react to that by creating conservative inference. Right. And uh, so also because they, I don't think they wanted to publish certain books under, under liberal imprints and, or, or, or under the main imprint. So you would just have these little conservative. Uh, oh, that's interesting. So, so there were anyway. things they knew would sell, but they didn't really want to have the HarperCollins name on it? Well, no, I mean, it, it's, it's not that so much. It's just that it, you didn't want it under your main imprint. Uh, you wanted okay. it, you wanted it, it under its own distinct brand. And so that's kind of how, how some of that came to be. Um, and I, that's not just HarperCollins. There are several, several uh, publishing houses that made decisions like that, you know, 10, 10 years ago or so. And so you'd have this imprint off to the side where you could build a conservative brand. And it was just because it was more new. Um, and HarperCollins has been super supportive of us. So I'm, I don't have any, any complaints on that front. Well, that's cool. Well, I, I, you know, this, all right, this is sort of one of those obvious questions, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Are you like a really fast reader? How much reading do you have to do over the course of a day? I, I, it it varies day to day. I'm actually not a very fast reader. Um, I'm lazy and easily distracted. And so it, it can be, it can be difficult to, when I need to get into the zone, get into the zone. I, a lot of the times will plug, plug book proposals into a, an app that essentially reads them to me Ooh. and then um, work, you know, work on the dishes or do something, do something that kind of like gets me over the hump of starting a proposal. Um, and so, yeah, I'll try and get, get a few, few done while I'm doing other things during the day. There's just so many other tasks and little things things and bits of housekeeping to get done right. uh, that it can be d- difficult to get into deep work mode and I'm I'm scatterbrained enough as it is that ma- that makes it difficult well it's, it's, so let's talk a little bit about what makes something catch your attention as something marketable so I, I get that you don't want to you're not going to just you know, print something just for the heck of it because it's on your list. I mean, it has to be something that's marketable. I'm, I'm struck by the fact that you're saying that you read some things and you go, well, this is really good and it's interesting and it's well-written, but it's not marketable. So what makes it not marketable or makes it more marketable? Well, it, partly it's, it's, if something is very complicated, then it can be really difficult to figure out how to boil it down into marketing language in, in a way that is easy to put it out for people. And that's partly me critiquing um, writing. I mean, if you're not able to boil down your idea into something simple, that's not necessarily uh, a sign of your great intelligence. It's probably a sign that you need to do more work. Um, But at the same time, you sometimes have ideas that are just so specialized that there's just not gonna be a broad audience for them. Um, Other instances, are things that are that are ideas that are very obvious. What I mean is that that if there's no sense of mystery, if there's no sense that like I want to read an entire book to understand why this is so, then it's just not a very catchy idea. It's some, it might make a good article, but it might not make a good book. Right, um, yeah. There needs to be a sense of a mystery to it. And if you're going to be an author, then you also want to and you're going to spend a year of your life working on this, then you probably want to spend a year of your life working on something that takes some time to figure out and to puzzle out and to figure out exactly how this works. Um, to my point about things that 
are true or that are widely believed, people tend to buy books that tell them something they already think is true. They tend, I mean, it is possible that people hate read books, but they don't tend to hate buy books. And I, I remember when my, my boss first explained it, that to me and I thought, that's not true. I'm not like that. But then I thought of the last few books I'd bought and I was like, oh my goodness, I am like that. I've oh, so you're bought, saying you might hate reading it, but you wouldn't, you wouldn't well, buy Well, the books it. that I get excited about, I think, are the ones that already cater to certain of my beliefs in, in that, like, I'm not going to go out and read something that's diametrically opposed to what, what I think. That doesn't mean right. that I can't sell something that's diametrically opposed to what I think, but I have, there have to be a, a number of people who already think something for you to sell it. I mean, it, it's, it's pretty hard. I mean, there, there might be, there are the rare occasions of you putting out something that people don't believe, but they want to believe, you know, but there, you're going to have to kind of work, work within the, the framework of people, people responding to ideas that they already, already think are true, um, that they're, they're just going to kind of cluster around those things. That doesn't mean, however, that you just have to write a book that, that re affirms people in every single thing they think. It just means that some, sometimes you have to kind of like choose a big idea that people are going to be able to cluster around. And then inside the book, you're able to nuance that idea. You're able to make it a, a much more, um, you're able to basically um, put, in, put in a lot more than, than just what it says on the cover. Do you find that there are people who kind of turn their book into a bit of a Trojan horse where they're like, I'm going to lure you into buying this book because you think it's going to be exactly what you like and what you think, but while you're in here, let me just try to convince you of some other stuff. Well, maybe a little bit. I mean, I, you, you don't want to pull off like a, a total bait and switch. You want to have some respect for the reader and they're, they're not going to be happy if they find something totally different in a book. And so you, as, as I'm thinking about books, I'm not just wanting to put something that like, I don't think is true, but then put all this other stuff <laughs> you know, it's completely un unlike the, you know, you don't want to be false advertising, but at the same time, like sometimes, you know, there's a big, a big broad idea that's out in the public, public sphere. You find an expert, you find somebody who can write a really interesting take on that topic that, you know, debunks some common myths, but that generally kind of guides around this particular big idea. And so that's the, that's the sort of thing I'm thinking of more is that, that you have someone who's able to nuance the idea that is spelled out in simpler terms in the marketing. Is it fair to say that everything that you're working with is nonfiction? Yes. Okay, so you don't get to read any, you know, wizards and, you know, none <laughs> Sadly of that. not, <laughs> given my childhood love of the Lord of the Rings. <laughs> oh, no kidding, oh, I'm on, I picked the right genre then, go figure. Yeah, yeah, I was obsessed with it. Um, and I think it's probably the fictional novel that it has affected me more than any other book in my life. So, uh, the whole series. Yeah, I think that it it had a lot of meaning for me because it was a myth about finding finding your place in the world, about finding a, a greater destiny in which you can be, become swept up, and about power about how we, uh, how we think about our responsibility in life and that all we have to do is decide what to do with the time that is given to us, that you know, we're, we don't choose the times we live in, but that we have to make the best of what we have, that, that hope is a duty, that there is good 
worth fighting for, that there, there are a, 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 many underlying principles about life and about the way we see the world that I, as a kid, I didn't have the language to, to express, but that are baked into the story. And I think I really picked up on those things emotionally. And I was, you know, I was looking for something big and exciting and I didn't really want to live where I lived. And I think that it's um, sort of re-enchanted reality for me for a while as a kid. And one day I looked out my window and I realized that, you know, I wanted to be somewhere else all this time. And I was living in the mountains that looked just like in the book that I was reading. And it, it really did, you know, as C.S. Lewis says that fantasy shouldn't make you want to run away to enchanted woods. It should re-enchant the woods that are around you, uh, to paraphrase him. And I think that it really did that for me, among other things. So it, I, I come back to it every few years. I know a lot of people that do as well. Right, if I had heard you give that explanation of, of, of Lord of the Rings, I might have done better at trying to read it because that is a beautiful thing that you just said. And I, I feel like I want a t-shirt that says, hope is a duty. I absolutely, did he say, did Tolkien say that or is that your line? Um, I, he, he did, I don't think he said it in, the, in as many words. It was, I think that his characters throughout always assume that despair is a sin on some level that all of the, all of these characters have to choose whether or not they're going to give in to the over the seemingly overwhelming power of the enemy now they don't have a way to explain what 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 it is in which they hope that is an important element of the lord of the rings that tolkien tolkien was a very devout catholic and the hope in which his characters trust is, is one which he doesn't explicitly put in the story. Uh, that you can definitely find it in other writings that sort of tie into it, but he didn't want it to be something that was a strict allegory for his own faith. He wanted people to be able to come into it and then see, see these sort of elemental truths uh, without being turned off by overly explicit language. I mean, that's, and I'm, I'm not even sure that's the best way to express it, but he, he thought that, that myth was about preparing our hearts for finding greater, greater truths in religion, essentially. Um, and so while the Lord of the Rings is not something that only Christians can enjoy or only Catholics can enjoy, it's very much shaped by that worldview, by that sense that we, we never entirely lose lose hope because there is a greater good because there is there is a person at the end of history who is who is good and kind and uh that that is the reality under under underneath the reality we in which we live and so Tolkien's ex expectations about that really set him out as an author in the 20th century because a lot of other authors just didn't have that expectation about what reality was understandably I mean World War One kind of was a moment that broke a lot of people's faith and in goodness and the possibility of hope and so it was a very despairing time in a lot of literature you read that you read Hemingway and you don't come away with the sense that hope is a duty right. um, and Tolkien was someone who was determined to push back against that and you can see that in in the, the stories that he wrote Seriously, I'm going to have to give it another chance because I, I did, in fact, make a pinky swear at homecoming uh, two years ago. I would read it. Well, it's I not just for everybody. Have, how old were you when you first read Lord of the Rings? Nine. I, I didn't. What? I didn't. 
I didn't understand it though. I didn't even realize that 30 pages were misprinted and put in the wrong place. I, my dad told me I couldn't watch the movies until I read the books and I'm like, oh yeah. So, so I read them and I was too young to understand them at all. Um, but rather wonderfully, even though they were my favorite books and I imagined myself in, you know, with a sword riding a horse dramatically <laughs> across Great Plains, I didn't understand the underlying meaning of them that I just expressed there until I was about 15 or 16. And so I sort of rediscovered them as a, as a, a young adult. Well, I mean, I guess I got I got to tell this part of the story, which is that when I was working as an intern or, a, you know, this would have been afterwards. I was a freelance writer for several years between, uh, between and during college and between getting this job. And I wrote an essay about Christopher Tolkien, who was the son of the man that wrote The Lord of the Rings, and about his act of preservation of his father's work, which is probably the best thing I've ever written. I'm pretty proud of it. And I ended up getting a note from his, well, his wife wrote my editor. She mentioned in the, in, in the, the email that he had read and appreciated the piece. So that still remains, no, no matter what else I do professionally, the, the moment <laughs> that I always look back with, on with the greatest fondness. I guess so. Where was the essay published? It would have been the Weekly Standard, which no longer exists. And so it's, it's still kind of floating around on the ether, but you have to use Internet Archive to track it down. I'm going to say again that you just finished in 2018, but you've, you know, to hear you talk, you know, you were, you know, you were, you've been an assistant editor at Harper Collins and you were a freelance writer. How, where, how have you had time to squish all that in? You just finished a couple of years ago. I mean, you, you've got a little dossier that makes it sound like you've been out of school for 25 years. Well, I'm secretly 82. Um, <laughs> I've, I've been You're holding up well, but I've, uh, I've been doing freelance writing since I was in college. So that's, that's been something that's been ongoing since I was, before I was at Emory, actually. How did you know, how did you know how to get published or to be out there? I mean, I mean, I would have thought just writing papers and getting through college would have kept you busy, but how did you go, oh, I, you know, I can do some freelance writing while I'm here? Well, the internet, really. Um, I started blogging back when that was a thing. I was about 15 when I started doing that. I wasn't, I mean, it wasn't any good when I started out, but I was able to sort of cut my teeth and, and figure out how to write for broader audience. I was starting to engage with people who were older than me, who were interested in the same things. I got on Twitter, which really is a sort of networking platform for people interested in journalism. And I got on it at a point when I was able to sort of rise to the top and start interacting with people that I would ha never have had any other opportunity to interact with. Journalists and editors. Uh, and one thing led to another, I ended up communicating with the editor of commentary. I can't remember if he's actually, if he was the editor at the time. He is now. Um, but I mentioned to him, hey, you know, because I'd shared something I wrote and I said, hey, if you know, if you ever needed some, somebody to write about TV for the Weekly Standard, which I knew he was a founding editor there. I didn't actually realize that he wasn't a current editor, but somebody who did work there saw that in the comments section and said, hey, you know, I'll email this kid and see, you know, if she wants to pitch something and they could all, they're like, we can always say no. So right. I pitched something in retrospect. It's a miracle that they did say yes, because my pitch letter was terribly like unfocused and I didn't know what I was doing. I just threw a bunch of stuff out there. I wrote the essay in two days. I barely ate. I was so stressed. 
And yeah, so they just kind of like ushered me in. And next thing you know, I was publishing there. I was very lucky to land where I did at the time. And the, the people had faith in me, despite me not knowing any of the rules about how to network, about any of that stuff. So I ended up published there. There were all of these mental barriers in my mind about who could be a freelance writer in a big publication. I assumed you had to have had, you know, three degrees and you have to to have lived in Washington, D.C. for 300 years, or I don't know. I mean, just like expectation for how easy it could be if you had a good idea and you huh. networked with the right person at the right time. They Well, but don't you, you know, also they, have to be able to write well? I mean, you know. Well, yeah. Looks I guess, like lost I guess that's, the obvious here. I guess that's also, also a part of it. But I, you know, I read a lot growing up. And I, in fact, that was one of the two magazines I read all the time growing up. So I kind of knew how to write for it already. And that was just a wonderful experience. I ended up at Emory. I was still writing there. I, again, kind of got pushed out of the boat by Emory requiring me to have an internship to graduate, which I didn't realize going in. And the only place that I knew to find an internship was to just message somebody at the standard. I'm like, hey, look, you know, (laughs) I know that there's got to be a huge number of hoops you have to jump through to get to be an intern here, but are you looking for anyone? And they're like, yeah, sure. And I mean, they, they did interview me, but it was. But you had the chutzpah to ask. And, and I think a lot of people don't. Well, I had the desperation that. to ask. I didn't know where else to go. And I didn't think they would say yes. So it, it was. And why was it required? Were you a math comm major? I was a math comm major. And they required and so, you to have an internship. Yeah, Dr. Finney told me I had to have an internship. And I'm like, do I? And he's like, yes. So, and, and now look, thank you, Dr. Finney. I'm going to yeah, remind everybody yeah. real quick that we're speaking with Hannah Long, Emory Emory class of 2018, who is with HarperCollins and a smaller subsidiary of HarperCollins called Broadside Books. What's it like to be living in Brooklyn? Well, you really do have to find your own sense of enchantment in Brooklyn. I'll say that. Being trapped here during COVID for a while was a bit soul crushing, but luckily our apartment building at the time had a backyard. It was a little bit like Mordor. It was full of broken glass and uh, one of the most invasive weeds in the whole world, um, Japanese knotweed. But oh, I, I devoted myself to it and worked outside for a good part of COVID. What is exciting about it is just the sheer energy. And there's always something going on. There's always some something interesting. You're always close to, to the stuff that is in the news, I guess. And that's not to say that the, the, the places that the news ignores are unimportant. I think that that's a very important thing to keep in 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 your mind as you consume media is that the cameras are, are always turned towards people that the, <laughs> that are holding the cameras, you know, that they, they turn towards the, the places that they come from and towards the places that are easy to get to. And so having access to, to media really does depend a lot on factors of, of education, of class, of, of race to some extent, I suppose, but it's that this is a place which, which the eyes of the world are on. So interesting things are always happening it's the cultural center of the world. I remember growing up and resenting that and thinking, well, you know, they're never going to have like, you know, a Marvel movie set in Southwest Virginia, which is true. I mean, I I think that Marvel's really missing out there. Uh, Spider-Man swinging through the, through through the trees of Cripple Creek. But (laughs) at the same time, it is, it is, I 
I will admit now that I'm here, I do appreciate being close to everything, getting to see, uh, have, have access to so many cultural things that I didn't have access to growing up. And that's kind of wonderful. Plus just the, the sheer diversity of everything. You, you see so many different types of people all the time. And again, I return to just the energy of the place. Everybody's trying to get some, you know, as someone who enjoys being around people who really have a vision for what they want to do being around so many highly motivated people who have all come here to try and be the best. I mean, you run into people who are ambitious and snobby and Lord knows I've probably been one of them, but it's also true that you're going to run into people who have a high sense of vocation and of wanting to do excellent work. And so I really appreciate that about here. It's also much friendlier than you would expect. When you're surrounded by millions of people, you're not going to be friendly to every single one of them every day because you, you can't afford to be. You only have so much emotional energy in the day, but you just meet softly earth people if you just sort of scrape past the surface a little bit. This Southwest Virginian has been grateful for that because I was not expecting it. I was, I was just assuming everybody's going to be rude all the time. No, I mean, it, that really hasn't been the, the case for me. There's uh, That's awesome. need all sorts of different types of people and uh, Southern friendliness tends to take people a little bit by surprise sometimes, but they're charmed by it instead of turned off usually. Oh, I don't think you have much of an accent. I mean, I do, but you don't sound like you have much of an accent. I have more of an accent on this interview than I usually do. Because I dragged you back into it. Yeah, I'm I'm mimicking you. Uh, I tend to I tend to code switch unintentionally. I try not to. I'm trying to dig my heels in and keep my Appalachian heritage intact. If nothing else, because it makes you. people laugh sometimes to trot out a little Appalachianism for my my mama. I can't imagine at your age hoofing it up to New York, enjoy hearing about what you're doing and seeing what you're doing, and the whole time just going, how does you know how does she. How did she do that? I just think that's really cool. And I'm just impressed to, to see what you're doing. It's amazing. Proud of you. Not that you need well, me to be proud of you, but I'm just telling you, proud of you. Proud you're one of us. Being away has really enhanced my love of the mountains and of Appalachia in general, which I've always been proud of. But I think I just, there's a sense in which I, you know, I'm, I'm very melodramatic and I'm like, oh, will I ever return? I can never return. I should, you know, I am cast out to the great Babylon forever. Uh, anyway, I mean, it, it, it definitely gives me a, a renewed appreciation for what the beauties of the place and the people are. My family has been in Appalachia since the 1700s. We really don't travel anywhere. Our, our house, I mean, we, we've lived in the same two to three counties for 250 years. I think I'm the first long in my direct line to have gone to England since we came over on the boat in the 1700s. Because again, we really don't go anywhere. How have you broken, if that's your family cycle, that to me might be the bigger story than anything you're doing that you stood up and said, see y'all, I'm going to, I'm going to Brooklyn. Well, I think the internet opens up a world of possibilities. So much of the networking that I had done would not have been geographically possible 20, 30 years ago. There wouldn't have been any. Interesting. Yeah. I'm kind of able to imitate people on Twitter and realize the ways that people make those connections. But I would also say that my dad was a huge influence on pushing me out of the nest. He wanted to be a journalist when he was in college or when he entered college. And he, you know, had some influences that told him not to do it. And I mean, himself too, he's like, I don't know how to do that. I don't know what to, how to, how to make that happen. There's just no, we don't have any writers in our family. We don't have anybody that works in liberal arts. uh, I think I'd have to have to think about that, but we have a lot of engineers. And so dad became an engineer and yet he always really wanted to do something creative, but he just, I mean, how, how do you make a job like that when you don't have any sense of what the possibilities are and of 
how to how to make it work. It's just it wasn't part of our vocabulary, part of our there was just this imaginative block. And I think yeah. this is true for a lot of Southwest Virginians in general, not just my family. But my dad, he had this high school teacher. He always said she pushed him to think beyond the mountain. And he said he she didn't realize how hard that was, but that she really pushed him to try and do it. And it wasn't enough to push him far enough. And I, I mean, it would have been an immense task for him to do that in the 70s, growing up in Sugar Grove. But I think he kept that in the back of his head all those years. And he transferred that to me and he, he could see me coming up against barriers and thinking, I can't do this. And he's like, no, we're not, you're not stopping just because you're scared or just because you don't know what you're doing. And he just kept kind of like pushing me to do it. Not, not pushing me against my will, but pushing me against my fears. He, he had built up a, a better sense of what was possible because he, because he traveled some, you know, he'd been around the country and he'd been around the block a few times. And he realized that my uncertainty was due to my youth more than the fact that I couldn't do things. And so he really did push me to to try things. He pushed me to think and to express myself. And he he never, ever put any limits on me because, you know, especially, you know, because I was a girl or because of any any of this stuff, which I really appreciate, you know, uh, you grow up in a more conservative part of the country. Sometimes you just feel like other people, you know, it's just all the other girls are doing this or all the other people. That's a pretty selfless act on his part because I bet he misses you like crazy. Well, he does. Yeah. They finally came up to visit me last year. One thing or another, they hadn't been able to. And I think he had a really fantastic time. He's uh, been able to go to the Met Opera when he visited last time. And he's been listening to them for many, many decades from his pickup truck when he's out clearing brush. I don't want to cut this off, but maybe I can get you back for part two at some point and we can talk about some more things because you're a fascinating young woman and I would love to learn more from you. And I'm not kidding. I might go have a t-shirt made that says hope is a duty because that's going to stay with me. <laughs> Anna. Let me ask you one more question. Um, are you are you planning to stay in New York and, and keep doing the work you're doing or do you have your eyeballs on another prize? No, I'm Well, I mean, I was promoted last year. I'm an assistant editor as opposed to an editorial assistant. It's sort of like moving from the uh, assistant to the regional manager to assistant regional manager. So it's not that huge a leap, but I'm happy where I am. I'm finding the work really fulfilling. I've signed several books recently under my own name, which is exciting. Feels like a lot of new and exciting things happening this year. And Anna, do you want to say anything to your folks back in? I love you. Thanks again for being with us. And everybody, keep on listening to WEHC 90.7, the voice of Southwest Virginia.